0: All right, I thought we'd start out with the question. What are some things that everybody who's gathered here today have in common? And I can think of at least three things that everybody here has in common. The first one is, if you live in Big Sky, if you're visiting Big Sky, on some level you love and are captivated by the mountains. There's just something about the geography here that inspires you and that's why you've chosen to live here or work here or visit here. A couple great quotes about mountains uh, might stir your heart if it's true that you are captivated by the beauty that's around us. The great naturalist John Muir said, the mountains are calling and I must go. Some of you just sat down and looked out the window and you're like, yeah, those mountains are calling me, I need to go, right? Uh, The writer Nathaniel Hawthorne said, mountains are nature's undecaying monuments. Isn't that true? Just some level of timelessness about those giant rocks. William Blake said, great things are done when men and mountains meet. It's just something epic about hiking or conquering a summit. And another writer wrote this, why even climb a summit when you eventually have to return? Well, what is above knows what is below, but what is below does not know what is above. And when one climbs, one sees, And when one descends, one might see no longer, but they have seen. There's just some sort of profound accomplishment that comes from time up at higher elevation. And so, I would suggest there's three things that we all have in common. On some level, everybody here is seeking Jesus. Maybe you've been seeking and following Jesus for many decades. Maybe you just stopped in this afternoon uh, to uh, examine just one more tiny step towards what it means to be a lover or a follower of Jesus Like I said, in addition to all seeking Jesus, we all love mountains or appreciate mountains in some degree. The third thing that we have in common, according to the three Bible passages that we're going to study today, is that we are all underestimating God. According to the metaphor that the writers of the Bible are using that we're going to talk about in the next 15 or so minutes, we are all underestimating who God is and what He wants of us. Uh, for those of you that grabbed a bulletin with the outline when you came in and, and, and maybe we, we ran out, uh, I just want to approach uh, today's sermon uh, in two quick parts. In section one, I just want to share some ways that songwriters and poets uh, and artists use mountains as a metaphor. And then I want us in section two to talk about how the writers of the Bible use that same particular metaphor to speak to us. So let's get started. Section 1, let's just kind of try to center in and, and hit the target or the bullseye about what most people are talking about when they use mountains as a metaphor. Maybe you guys are familiar with some folksy sayings or some idioms that people use to talk about mountains. Maybe you've heard people say this, you know, faith can move mountains. You guys ever heard that before? And what that saying is faith is going to help you accomplish more than you can even comprehend, right? And that saying, mountains represent more than you can even comprehend. Or how about this? Maybe you've been told that you're making a mountain out of a molehill. And when somebody tells you that, they're saying you're making something small into something much greater than it needs to be. And again, the metaphor is that the mountain is something bigger than you're normally considering or dealing with about nicknames i don't Did we get those on the slide okay so we were having some computer problems Uh, when i was a little kid my favorite basketball player was this guy from the republic of the congo his name was dakimbe mutombo he was seven foot two and he's the second all-time leader in the nba in blocked shots in other words every time somebody tried to slam dunk on dakimbe mutombo he would reach up his seven foot two body and block that shot. He played in Denver, Colorado and so his nickname was Mount Matumbo. right? We had this Nerf basketball hoop with suction cups and when my parents left the house we would stick it up in our living room and I would dare my little brother to try to slam dunk on that Nerf hoop and every time I would jump up and I would block it. It wasn't fair, I was four years older than him, right? And does anybody know what Mount Matumbo would do after he blocked a shot? He would go like this, right? <laughs> and you better believe my little brother grew up with a steady diet of that. Or how about this? The strongest man in the world is an Icelandic strongman named Hafur Julius Bjornsson. I'm glad he's not here to hear me butcher his name. He's six foot nine. He's three hundred and forty four pounds, and he holds a lot of the world records for. Strongman competitions. When HBO was casting a show and they needed a character whose nickname was The Mountain, this six foot nine, 344 pound man passed the audition and got the role of The Mountain. In other words, when you get the nickname The Mountain, it means you're just living at a scale and a size larger than most people come up against. And let's wrap up section one with this. I'm going to read some lyrics to some well-known songs that deal with mountains, and I want you guys to join in if you're familiar with those words. How about this? Climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know. And that comes from The Sound of Music by Rodgers and Hammerstein, right? Like, the mountains are where you will discover yourself. That's where you'll find fulfillment. How about this? He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he's never been. He left yesterday behind him. You might say he was born again. You might say he found a key for every door. That's Rocky Mountain High by John Denver. One of my favorite singers you might not be familiar with, his name is Towns Van Zant, and he's just kind of a singer of the mountains. And he has this lyric that says, Well, I made me some friends, Lord, that I won't soon forget. Well, some are down under and some are rambling yet. But as for me, well, I'm headed for home, back to high Colorado, nevermore to Rome. In other words, he's singing that I've I've rambled and I've experienced everything this world has to offer, but I'm going back to the mountains because that's where the peace and the serenity that I need are found. So if you take these folk sayings, if you take these nicknames, uh, if you take these song lyrics and you put them all together and boil them down, like what do they all have in common? Literal mountains are beyond the scale of our comprehension. And so they become a context or a setting for this idea that when we go into the mountains we experience a rebirth or a recalibration or just a reconstruction of the the size and the scale of what you used to know. Maybe you guys don't need all those song lyrics and poems because you just like to go up hiking and when you are at a beautiful summit, you experience this for yourself. And the problems that you had at the beginning of your hike kind of get recalibrated and put into perspective when you're just in the immensity and the beauty of the mountains. This is how modern artists use mountains, and of course this is how the Bible's writers and poets use the metaphor as mountains as well. So let's move on to section two, and I'd just like to share three verses where the Bible's poets are using this same metaphor that this idea of a mountain is telling us that there's things about God that are just at a bigger scale than we often take time to comprehend. All right? Our first verse today is in Psalm 97:5. If you have an app or a Bible with you, I'd love it if you'd turn to Psalm 97:5. And the idea of Psalm 97:5 is this same idea, this same metaphor that God is a his presence is a greater reality than any of us Realize. So this psalmist here in Psalm 975 says this. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So again, like what does a mountain represent? A mountain is just something bigger than we normally experience. It's on a scale of larger than we normally think about. If you go out through the history of humanity, the mountain has always been the biggest thing. That a human can understand, and here in Psalm ninety-seven five, the psalmist, the, the the poet, is saying, God's presence is such an intense reality; it's such a real thing that even a mountain, the best thing that we can comprehend, would melt like candle wax. And do, do we spend twenty-four-seven thinking about just the overwhelming reality of God's presence? No, because as humans, we get distracted. And, 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 and other smaller things captivate our attention. And so here, we get this beautiful reminder from Psalm 97.5 that God is a greater reality than we normally take the time to comprehend. God's presence could melt. The most substantial thing being a mountain that we've ever experienced. And so that's, that's the poetic way that the Bible explains that. And I was just thinking this week, are there any narratives, are there any stories in the Bible that kind of illustrate the same principle? And I thought about Acts chapter 9 where there's this guy Saul. And I don't know if you guys are very familiar with Saul and later on his name got changed to Paul. But in the time of this story, he's very accomplished. He's already a made man, he already has a phenomenal career. Saul is essentially the top four or five Pharisees in all of Jerusalem at that time. He's already the top of the ladder of uh, of his career and his scope of influence. And ironically, he's made that career out of persecuting and kind of chasing down this new religious way that we would know now as Christianity, as followers of Jesus. And he's already kind of at the top of Judaism at that time, and, and he's trying to kind of stamp out this new Christian church, this new tradition. Uh, someone was talking to me this week about a leadership book that they had read, and, and there's, in this book, there's just kind of different levels of leadership And the highest you can go, according to this one particular theory, is like a level five leader. And and other leaders can be really good and accomplished, but according to some recent management studies, the level five leader is somebody who's such an excellent leader that even after they leave the organization, even after they're no longer in charge of that company, even after they're dead, they were such an extraordinary leader that their movement continues on. We know from, from, from later writings, in the New Testament that this guy, Saul, was a level five leader. Because just think of how the church, the Christian church, is thriving now, even 2,000 years after he started the church. So what what we can deduce is that Saul was a phenomenal leader. He already had all these allegiances and all these accomplishments. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he, see, he experiences this bright light and he hears this incredible voice and he falls off his donkey or he falls to the ground. And did he go back to life as normal? Or was he changed forever? He, he, he changed all of his religious allegiances. He, he risked the, the, the friendship of all of his peers. He completely changed sides. And he is now the great church builder that we think of today. And I think that's an incredible illustration of the change that comes over us when even for a split second we experience the reality of God. The psalmist tells us there in Psalm 97.5 that the reality of the presence of God can melt a candle like wax. It's just a poem. It's just a poetic way of challenging us that when we take a moment to to contemplate and truly experience God for the, the power and the presence and the reality that He has man, like, like every, every allegiance and way that we previously look at ourself, it should be challenged. It should be challenged to melt away. Just like Saul did in that story when he completely changed the direction and the people that he hung out with and the ideals that he lived for and the things that he invested in. So I just want to ask you guys a couple questions. Like, if the presence and the reality of God is, is enough to melt mountains... Does that challenge you to think about ways that maybe you've put God in a box? Do you maybe limit what God could do based on what you've experienced in the past? Have you built your expectations on the limits of what God can do based on what God's done in the life of other people? And uh, is God a reality that melts mountains in your life? Or is it just a kind of a sliver of a pie chart, along with a lot of other things that get your thoughts and allegiances and investments? And I'm not here to condemn anybody or make them feel bad. Like, I think this is good news. I think it's good news that no matter how you came in here today thinking about God, the author of Psalm 97.5 is saying you're underestimating God. And, And I think that's good news. And I hope it challenges you to go on a walk this week, to go up to a beautiful place, and to contemplate that God has more in store for you as you walk with Him in the future than you've contemplated or thought possible up to this point. Let's move on to another place in the Bible where a poet uses the same metaphor. And it's in Psalm 18:7. And in Psalm 18:7 it says this: The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook and they trembled because God was angry. There's not a lot of churches that you're going to go to, at least not a lot of churches with this many people in it, where the pastor is talking about the anger of God. It's a very unpopular thing for churchgoers or non-churchgoers to spend any time thinking about. But here in Psalm 18.7, the poet is using this same metaphor that the mountain is something more than we typically experience or contemplate, and he's saying that's what God's anger is like. God's anger towards sin, God's anger towards people that are breaking the way that he's called us to live are underestimating the power and the anger of God. So again, I was trying to think, Is there if this is true, that God's anger is way heavier and substantial than we normally think about, I was wondering if there are any stories in the Bible, any narratives that kind of remind us that this is something that's true about God. And probably haven't heard a lot of sermons about this one. But in Acts 5, 1 to 11, it tells us about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And they're two Christ followers, right in the time when the church is, is starting to grow and starting to thrive. And so what I've learned in the book of Acts is that sometimes God acts a little bit more dramatically and overtly than we're used to because this great movement is starting and God's not messing around. And there's this guy, this husband, Ananias, and he he sells this land and he receives some money and he gives it to the church. And so we're told that his sin is deceitfulness and, and a lie. It's not because he didn't give all the money to the church. That's not the lie. The problem is that he presents himself as somebody who gave the full gift to the church, but he held some back for himself. So again, it's not a lack of generosity. This isn't me telling you to shake your pockets and get a little bit more in the offering. It's purely a story about God confronting lie and deceitfulness, and Ananias falls over dead. And a little bit later, his wife Sapphira walks in, and and Peter, the head of the church at that time, he kind of asks some probing questions. And she passes on the same lie and the same deceitfulness, and Sapphira falls over dead on the spot as well. And there's not a lot of stories like that in the Bible, but there's enough to remind us that the poet in Psalm 18:7 is not out there on a limb on his own. He's saying that just like a mountain is just greater than something that you total that you normally think about, the anger of God is real and it's substantial. And we should be afraid of that as we allow sin and disobedient behaviors in our life. Probably the cutest video that I've ever uh, taken is of my daughter at the time. She was two years old, she was tiny, she had like a big, bald Charlie Brown head, and she had to wear these little rubber glasses that just made her super cute. And we had this really thin curtain over our porch door anybody could see through it, like you could even put a book on the other side and read the the letters, it was so thin. And she would go behind it, and she would say, where's Lucy? And she would start laughing because she didn't think that anybody could see her on the other side of that super thin curtain. There's just something about a lack of object permanence in a small child, where if any little blanket or covering is over them, even if they cover their eyes with their fingers, if they can't see you, they think that you can't see them. And it's cute and it's funny, but it's also a powerful illustration of how we often act before God. We, we have overt sin in our life. I know you do. I know that I do. And sometimes we kind of giggle about it and we pretend like others can't see it. And because we go to a church and because we live in an era where people don't point their finger and shout that out, we kind of think that we're getting away with it. But... Uh, Psalm 18.7 is reminding us that God's anger against sin is like a mountain. It's substantial. It's immense. And and we can't just pretend like we can't see it or that God doesn't see our sin. And that's bad news, but our third thought for today as we wrap up and the good news of this sermon is that there's another place that uses this same metaphor and it's in Isaiah 54.10. And if our last poetic image says that God's anger is enough to shake a mountain, Isaiah 54.10 tells us that in the same way that God's anger is enough to shake a mountain, God's patience and favor for you is greater than a mountain as well. So our final verse is Isaiah 54.10 and it says this, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has love and compassion for you. So in review, the first way that the poet in the Bible uses this image is that God's presence is is greater than a mountain. It's more than you've been thinking about. The second way that this same metaphor is used is that God's anger towards the sin in your life is also heavier and more substantial than you take time than I take time to think. But finally, the great news of this image is that God's love and favor is also greater than a mountain as well. And it says that the mountains will actually cease to exist and God's love and favor will continue on. Isn't that great news? Again, it's a a poem, but there's truth in what it's communicating to us. So, as we wrap it up, I was trying to think of is there a story in the Bible that again illustrates this poetic image that God's love and favor and faithfulness to us is just more than we can comprehend? And the fourth week this year of our Bible reading project, back in January, we read the Old Testament book of Hosea. And as Hosea starts, God grabs this prophet in Old Testament times. And he says, Hosea, I want you to marry a wife who will be unfaithful to you. And you're like, whoa, that's, that's a big ask. That's something that you couldn't really ask of a person to endure. But Hosea does it. And his wife, his spouse, is unfaithful. And that asks a lot of questions that we don't have time to go into today about how God sometimes expects us to endure heartbreak and undeserved things. But as the book of Hosea wraps up, we have this realization that Gomer, the unfaithful spouse, isn't really the antagonist of the story because she's really just meant to represent that we are an unfaithful spouse to God and He loves us anyway. His love endures. And I know there's doubtlessly people here today that have been betrayed by a spouse or betrayed uh, by, by somebody close in their life. And so when we hear this story, we sometimes flash back to, to, to the experience and the heartbreak of when we were betrayed. And, and sometimes our processing of the story just ends there. And we're like, man, God, you, you ask hard things. But again, don't let the story end there because that's not what it's about. What that story is about is that God's love and faithfulness for us is more than we can comprehend. And it overcomes the deep, deep betrayals that we have brought before God. So Isaiah 54.10 is this beautiful poetic image that even when the mountains are no longer there, God's love and favor for you will still endure. God's love and faithfulness and favor to those that follow Him uh, are like the love of Hosea to Gomer. So let's wrap up with uh, kind of bringing this all together. By appealing to this kind of imagery of just the, the weight and the substantialness of a mountain, by using this imagery and this metaphor that we're all familiar with from nicknames and songs and sayings, the Bible's poets are challenging you that the reality of God and the anger of God and the love and the favor of God are all things that are just so much more deep and dynamic and real than we typically take time to experience. Let me ask you this question. Do you love the mountains? Do you live on a mountain? Do you appreciate the mountains? If so, let that imagery and let the, the, the way that the poet is using that imagery challenge you this week and challenge you this summer that we've all underestimated God. We've all put God in a box. And if the poets of the Bible are telling us that the presence and the anger and the favor and the love of God are bigger than the greatest thing that we've comprehended, let's take that as good news and accept that God is telling us that He wants to reveal Himself more to us, specifically His love and favor and faithfulness, than He has in the past or He has up to this point. So at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and we'll just wrap up service by celebrating the Lord's supper Uh, if you guys would like to celebrate communion with us and you didn't get a chance to uh, take any of the elements uh, please just take a moment now to uh, grab some of those from the back and um, we've talked in previous weeks about covenants a covenant is a mutual relationship between two parties and in the old testament the israelites were under the covenant of the law And so in in many places, God has told His people in the Old Testament, if you follow these laws, my love and my favor will be upon you. But, But the problem that we can all relate to is we all break God's laws from time to time. As humans, we just can't get it perfect. We are all like Gomer. We are all unfaithful to God. But Jeremiah tells us, that God, because of that exact dilemma, is going to bring forth a new covenant. And that's what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, when, when, when it's explaining communion and it talks about a new covenant. The new covenant is that Jesus Christ is going to allow us to be connected to, to love and to follow God, to represent God to others, not because we are still carrying the law perfectly, but because Jesus perfectly carried the law. And Jesus is is, is living out that relationship in a way that overflows in our life.